And it is such a privilege to be in a place like this on a day like this. It's not a bad day, is it? It's a lot of peace in this place and outside. So just enjoy that as God speaks to us. Thinking back, we've had some special Sabbaths. We just highlighted that we had Education Sabbath last week. Then before that, we had Serpentine Prophecy. Before that, we were finishing up a study on the Sabbath worth keeping. And if you like to know where things are going, I'll just give you a kind of a, a map of sermon plans. I like to preach in series. Usually you don't just preach one. So the next five are in a, a series. We're going to go on a Holy Land tour in our sermons. Anyone ever go on a real Holy Land tour? Yeah, there's a few. It's pretty phenomenal. For me, I think life-changing is an appropriate word for how I experienced a Holy Land tour. My view of Scripture and understanding what I'm reading. So, Holy Land tours are something that a whole lot of people do for a whole lot of different reasons. And it's not just Christians. Just for example, the draw of this place, Jerusalem has an, a smaller part of Jerusalem called the Old Town, the Old City. And it is about 0.35 square miles. So, small place, divided into quarters. And they have a Christian quarter. So, pilgrims have gone since the third century to, to go see sites there on pilgrimage for a Christian pilgrimage, but that's not the only religion going to a holy land. So in the Christian quarter, you might visit the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which tradition says is covering the place where Jesus both died and resurrected, but who knows? So you might go to that place, but you might cross over into the Jewish quarter, which has many holy sites, including the Western Wall, which is remnants of Second Temple, where they worship. And I've been there on a Friday night and seen the welcoming of the Sabbath. Or you might go to the largest area, which is the Muslim quarter, which has many churches and mosques, or even the, whole, the Temple Mount. So this is like the holiest of the holy spots. And, you know, at one time, Solomon's Temple stood there. And now in the very center of it, there is, since the 7th century, the Dome of the Rock, which is a Muslim shrine. So you have the three major monotheistic religions coming to this tiny place because to them it has holy, relevant place uh, meaning for worship. So here is not just Christians— and not just Jerusalem, and not just 21st century. This is people who have been going for centuries to this little place that we read about in the Bible, and other places like Galilee, and, and the coast, and all these places you read in Scripture, to find an experience with the land we read about in Scripture. So we're going to do just a little bit of that. And I had a chance to go in 2018. I thought it was phenomenal. I'm just going to highlight five different places. I think I've brought some of those places into sermons over the last few years here. But I'm going to highlight five places that touched me. So we're going to begin on Mount Nebo. We're going to think about promises. Let's pray as we get into this study. Lord, I pray that you would meet with us. This is holy ground too. Because you are here. And I pray that we'd experience a God just as tangible 
as those in Scripture experienced you in these special places. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So my experience on Mount Nebo did not require 40 years wandering in the wilderness, but it, it did take about 40 hours in and between airports. So it started in Seattle, and I went with the Washington Conference tour led by Carl Cozart from Walla Walla University. And from SeaTac Airport, maybe there was about 12 of us there. But then when we flew to New York, we picked up a few more in the group, and then we flew to Paris and picked up a few more. And then we landed, I don't even know how many hours and time zones different, but we landed in Amman, Jordan. And when we got to Amman, there was enough of us to fill a tour bus. So this was the, the group that was going to go for the next, I think it's 12 days, around Jordan and Israel and see these holy sites. And we were all tired, and there was a few in the group who lost their, their bags and, you know, just had their shorts and t-shirt and sandals. And so it was a rough start, but we went to the hotel to all get sleep, and I'm thinking, that's exactly what we need is sleep, but I couldn't, you know? I still, I get excited on any trip. Like, I could be going on an airplane to somewhere I've been 50 times, and I just get excited, just because I'm doing something. And I'd never been in this country, and I've read about this, so I could not, I mean, I'm looking out the window at all the cars and all the people, and we get to the hotel, and everyone just crashes, and I realize there's food downstairs, and there's a whole bunch of it, complimentary. So there's hummus and olives and, like, amazing Middle Eastern food. So I go down there and eat, then I hear some music, and across the, the way in the hotel, there's a wedding going on. And I don't really have a thing for weddings, but this one like, had all the cultural flair of a Jordanian wedding. So I stand out in the hall just watching this wedding. And then finally go to sleep. And the next day, so this, the next day is a Friday, and we wake up. We're tired, but we're excited because we all get to go see our first sights. So we're in Amman, Jordan and driving through a desert to go see some ancient ruins, and we see a Jordanian Starbucks, and, and then other cultural things that I've never seen. But then we get to the Amman Citadel. I think I actually have pictures of these things. So are we ready for me to click through pictures? Got to move the mouse. So we go to the Amman Citadel, and we see the, this is the tour right here. And then see some ruins in the morning which were fascinating. There's our group. And then we got in the bus and drove a little ways across Jordan, and we went to a church that had uncovered an ancient tile mosaic, which is like the first map of the Holy Land. So they dug down and found these tiles that were mapping out the area we read about in the Bible. And then the bus drove us up a little ways from there, and we ended on Mount Nebo. It wasn't really a hike. We just parked and paid our few dollars and walked through. Mount Nebo is this place where Moses went to view the land and to die. And we got to, to go on up there and, and notice our first experience with holy sites. There are, there's a little prep talk we had to get about how we should behave in these places. Because, uh, I don't know if you can see the sign, but there's a lot of things not allowed. So... Um, women had to cover. They couldn't wear uh, tank tops and show skin, couldn't wear shorts. And this is July in, uh, in Jordan, 
and, you know, no cell phones, no yelling, this uh, site of reverence. So there's this church on top of Mount Nebo, and then there is the view. So you, it was a hazy day, but what that blue thing is right there above my head is the Dead Sea. And then you can kind of make out um, a line. That's the Jordan River. It goes up to the Sea of Galilee. And beyond that are the hills, the foothills before Jerusalem. Right about here is Jericho, where the walls came tumbling down. And beyond all that, you can't see it, but it's there, is the Mediterranean Sea. So I'm looking out at all this stuff thinking, such history is spread before the land I'm looking at with my eyes. Just to the south, that view faces west. So just to the south would be this wilderness where Israel wandered for 40 years before entering that land. That river, the Jordan River up there, they have the plains of Moab spread out before us, and that's where they're waiting to go across this place they've longed for. You know, all their history, they, they've never lived over there. They just have ancestors who've lived in slavery, and now they've been longing for this land, and they're thinking, we're going to march across that river, and we're going to take our inheritance. And I'm looking at all this. So I start thinking about the significance, and I remember how I felt. I, I felt, this was the first moment where I felt, I'm in Bible lands. This stuff is real. And I didn't come into it with doubt, like that the Bible was not real. But seeing it, I thought this story that I read about and talk about and teach about, it's a real story. It happened in a real place at a real time. And there it is. And I remember also thinking about the excitement, you know, the parallels between Israel claiming their inheritance and us going into the heavenly promised land are they're so connected. So I'm looking at them crossing in and thinking, very soon we cross that Jordan and claim our inheritance. So it was a spiritual high moment for me. Then we had a worship. Our group had a, had a wonderful time worshiping up there. And then we went just a little ways from there to another incredible Middle Eastern restaurant and ate more food. And it was just the perfect way to begin our experience in the Holy Lands. It was a Friday. We were going to drive from there to Petra and spend Sabbath at Petra. And then I think it was the next day we were going to go on into Israel. My experience was very different than Moses' experience. I got to look at a land that I knew I would enter Moses didn't have the Middle Eastern restaurant right there. It included two things, and here's what it says. The, the verse that was read for us is in Deuteronomy 20, uh, 32, and this is 49 and 50. Go up this mountain of the Abram, the Mount, no, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession. And die on the mountain which you will go up and gather to your, and be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. So there are two instructions for Moses to follow after going up the mountain. Look at the land and die. So not every promise is equal. If someone makes you a promise... No guarantee that's going to be as good as another promise. So I looked up different types of promises, and there's a group, the McGraw Consulting Group, that categorizes promises in three 
different categories. One is a strong or healthy promise, one is a shallow promise, and one is criminal. So strong and healthy, those are those promises that are made with every intention of fulfilling them. Like you can count on them. If they don't happen, it's because something major happened. This person like, could not fulfill their promise because they had every intention of fulfilling it. That's a strong, healthy promise. And then the shallow promise is the promise that's made, and in the back of your mind it's like, yes, I, I will plan to be there unless I feel sick. Unless there's something more interesting to do. So, so yeah, that's a good intention, but I don't really want to commit to it. So that's a shallow promise. And then the criminal promises, you've experienced those two, are those promises that are, that are made, and at the time you're saying them, you actually have no intention of following through with them. You know what all those promises feel like? Maybe you've been on the receiving end of all those promises. A strong or healthy promise, it feels like uh, security because you can count on that person. You build trust, and this is at the core of relationships. A shallow promise breaks that trust, and a criminal promise breaks it even more. So you know what all these feel like. You also know what a Nebo promise feels like. You probably haven't used the term because I'm just making it up. But you know exactly what it feels like. Because a Nebo promise is what Moses experienced. It's the promise of bitter sweet. Where it's a strong promise. It's in the category of strong because you can count on it. It's guaranteed. But the things you're counting on are not all good. There's some bad things that are guaranteed, and there's some good things that are guaranteed. So Moses stands up there, and he sees the land. That's sweet. And then he's going to die. That's bitter. So we're going to think about the Nebo promise experience. What I invite you to do is just the best you can in your spiritual eye. Put yourself on top of Nebo and consider the bitter, sweet promises that God has put in front of you. On this side of the Jordan, bittersweet is actually the best we got. If we attempt to ignore the bitter, it's going to blindside us and really hurt. Or if we just get in that zone where we just fixate on the bitter, we're missing out on so much of the sweet. But God, God gives promises. For example, Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Do you see the bittersweet promise there? That's a Nebo promise. You're going to have trouble. Guaranteed. I'm going to promise you the bitter. And I have overcome the world. Sweet. That's a Nebo promise. So we know what those feel like because the best of our promises, this side of the Jordan, are bittersweet. If you're married, you made a promise at the beginning of your marriage, and you weren't naive. Your promise said something like, for better or for worse, because you know in a sinful world, worse happens. Bitter happens. So you made a promise and said, I'm going to be faithful even in the sweet and in the bitter. When you hold a newborn baby, that's pretty sweet. You're thinking of the miracle of life and the promise in this young life. And you're also thinking, man, the pain that they're going to experience. The future they have in this broken world is, is bitter. 
Or when you come up, like we're a few weeks away from graduation, if you have a child or a grandchild graduating from high school, there's so much sweet in that. You're thinking of the success and the, the future that they have and how bright they are and all the memories. And then you're also thinking it's never going to be the same again. I'm never going to get those years back. So every good promise we have, they come intertwined, bitter and sweet. The goal I have in reviewing Nebo promise is actually to receive both of those in faith. To receive the bitter in faith, to receive the sweet in faith, because Nebo is a place of being torn. And this is the experience of Moses. He's at the climax of his life. I mean, he's been waiting for this thing. He's looking down on the land he's been longing for. It's also the end of his life. So it's a place of tension, of being torn between bitter and sweet, the bitter ending and new beginnings, death and life. He's looking at the reward of the people entering and also the punishment that he can't go in for his sin. He's looking at success and failure. He's thinking about God's faithfulness. And then he feels the pain of his own unfaithfulness. It's a place of victory and defeat, hope and disappointment, and that's the tension of a Nebo promise. Nebo promises are not broken promises. See, a broken promise is a promise that couldn't be kept. Nebo promises are not broken promises. They're promises that are given in a broken world. So they live in a place where bitter is expected. So let's think about the bitter first. Then we'll go to the sweet. There's the bitterness of death. That's on his mind. So the text tells us he went up to die, to be gathered with his people. We're going to look at a bunch of passages from a chapter in the book Patriarchs and Prophets. So there's a book on, ne or there's a chapter on Nebo. I think it's 43. And Moses' experience up there. And I'm just going to highlight some of these to paint a picture of what he might have been experiencing. So he's thinking death. And as he goes up, and then he actually does it two chapters later. So we have chapter 30, 32, where it's prophesied or predicted. Chapter 34, where it happens. And it happens, the end of this text says, he was 120 years old and he was full of strength. He wasn't unhealthy. So there was an end to his life when he felt like, I have so much more to give. I'm, I'm ready, God. I want to go. Here's the thoughts that are in his mind in Patriarchs and Prophets. So I'm going to actually read from here because I can see it much better. It says, Moses had often left the camp in obedience to the divine summons to commune with God, but he was now to depart on a new and mysterious errand. He must go forth to resign his life into the hands of his creator. Moses knew that he was to die alone. No earthly friend would be permitted to minister to him in his last hours. There was a mystery and awfulness about the scene before him from which his heart shrank. I don't know where you're at in life, but there might be something of which there's a mystery and awfulness from which your heart shrinks. And that's a very appropriate place to, to, to bring yourself to Mount Nebo and look at God's promises. Maybe there's something that your heart is shrinking from right now. So put yourself in Moses' place. 
part of the promise, like God told him, guaranteed, you can count on it, you're going to die, you're not going to enter the land. And I don't know exactly how Moses took it, but we do know that he knew this, the whole book of Deuteronomy. So he's writing the whole book of Deuteronomy. He was told in chapter 3 that he would die. So, so that's written at the very beginning. So everything you read in Deuteronomy is Moses shifting his efforts from, um, from him leading the people to him leaving a final book to, to give the people a lasting call to faithfulness. And when we go back to chapter 3, we find that Moses, he pleaded with God. And God eventually says, enough from you. Do not speak to me on this matter again. There are ancient Jewish commentaries on Scripture um, called Midrash. There's a Midrash about this story, a Midrash about that. There are Midrashes about the death of Moses. So I spent a couple hours reading ancient Jewish commentary on the death of Moses. And the Midrash says, they really highlight this section right here where there was negotiation between God and Moses. One of them actually has a countdown. Five hours before his death, this is what he asked God. Then four hours before his death, this is what he thought. And it gives this um, psychological journey of Moses to his death. And one of them highlights this pleading and says that Moses approached God, and I don't give a lot of, of authority to this, but this is the traditional interpretation of what Moses might have been going through. Moses wanted to go so bad that when God said, you will die, he said, well, God, turn me into a fish so I could go in the, the waters of the Jordan and I could see the land on the other side. And God said, no. And he said, well, God, turn me into a bird so I can fly over and I can view the land. God, send my body across. So they highlight this pleading that was going on. I don't know if Moses actually said those things. But we do get the sense from chapter 3 that Moses had a time with God when he just, God, is there any way you could change your mind? I want to go there so, so bad. So this was not just death. Death is hard. This was death just short of the thing Moses wanted more than anything else. It was just short of the thing he worked for for the last 80 years, right? He'd been tending sheep for his father-in-law, thinking about a promised land. He'd been talking to Pharaoh and going across the Red Sea and wandering in the wilderness, thinking about this promised land. So it's not just death, it's death just short of the goal. And that's bitter. So Moses takes in the bitterness of the end of his life, and the end of his life thinking, if I could just have one more week, God, you just let me see this place. And then it says, this is a few pages later in Patriarchs and Prophets, Again, the vision faded, and his eyes rested upon the land of Canaan as it spread out in the distance. Then, like a tired warrior, he lay down to rest. It just feels like that's not how the story should end. This man who gave himself for this, and now he just quietly falls asleep alone on this mountain. And then there's the bitterness, not just of death, but of his own unfaithfulness. The reason that Moses was dying was not because he was old. He still had vigor and his eyes had not dimmed, it says. And it was not because uh, the people didn't want him to lead there. And right after he dies, there's a couple verses about how no one has ever been so great as Moses. To see God face to face and to lead his people. The people thought he was the highest 
status of a leader. He died because, it tells us in chapter 32, verse 51, he died because he broke faith with God back when he struck that rock. So there's this story. We'll go back real quick and see the story from uh, Numbers. And just, just notice, there's a lot of reasons why this might have been a sin. But just notice the credit Moses takes and the lack of giving credit to God. So this is Numbers uh, 20, verse 11 through 13. It says, Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water out of this rock? And Moses lifted his head and hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe it's cut off on there. Because you, where am I at? Because you did not believe in me. Is that where it ends? Okay. To uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. So he says, shall we bring this out? Shall we do this? And God says, hey, this would have been a great opportunity for you to highlight my faithfulness rather than you be upset with the people and draw attention to your own ability here. So Moses had this opportunity to show God is faithful, and he did not. He did not uphold him as holy. So now Moses is climbing this mountain, and he's thinking about this. Moses had done a lot of incredible things. Moses had, to his credit, had led with faithfulness in like every other point. And he's thinking about this one point of failure. So put yourself in the Mount Nebo position. I don't know. Is there something that you reflect on in your life and you just feel tremendous re regret and guilt and shame? And even though you know the gospel and you know God, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, you don't know if he quite loves you because you're kind of dirty. And this is, the thoughts going through Moses' head are, man, Am I, am I really faithful enough for God? This is what it says in Patriarchs and Prophets. So, so, the mindset of someone who had sinned. As he looked back upon his experience as a leader of God's people, one wrong act marred the record. If that transgression could be blotted out, he felt that he would not shrink from death. He was assured that repentance and faith in the promised sacrifice were all that God required. And again, Moses confessed his sin and implored pardon in the name of Jesus. So if you can relate to those times when you're, you're just kind of back and forth between the voice of the accuser and the voice of the gospel, where you're thinking, man, if this one thing could just be blotted out, and then you're sure that God is a gracious God, he was having that struggle as he went up this mountain. I'm guilty, God is good, but I'm guilty. And he found a peace in the righteousness of Christ. So he had the guilt of unfaithfulness. And here's the, the thing that's true to us, is that unfaithfulness is part of the Nebo promise. You will be unfaithful to God. You know how I know that? You're a sinner. So it's, it's part of the deal. We will be unfaithful. Uh, Jesus said to Peter, 
you will go out and deny me. Paul writes, all have sinned and fallen short. And the promise we have is that God's faithfulness is actually stronger than our unfaithfulness. So the hope that we have of the promised land, this is a message God is sending to us. The hope we have in the promised land is not rooted in our faithfulness to God, but in his faithfulness to us. So Moses is feeling all these emotions of his own unfaithfulness, and not just his unfaithfulness, he's thinking about the future unfaithfulness of his people. So up there, he could have had this wonderful parting thought that even though he's dying, his people are going to enter the land. And God didn't let him have it. Imagine, like, if you're, you're a parent who's, you've raised your children and you're about to die, but you're your final thought that comforts you is that your children are doing well. They're, they're married in a good marriage. They have kids. They have a good career. You want to just die with that sweet thought. Well, imagine God comes to you with a prophetic word and says, actually, after you die, they're going to be terribly depressed, and their marriage is going to fall apart, and they're going to lose their job, and they're going to get addicted to a substance. And you would just close your ears and say, man, I don't want to know that. Well, that's Pretty much what God did to Moses. He could have just let him know that they're going to go into that promised land. Moses, you just rest. I got these people. But just a few chapters earlier, God decides to tell him something so disheartening. Moses had worked. He'd given up the riches of Egypt to lead these people into a promised land. He'd given everything for this. And God just breaks this news that all the things he worked for Moses, well, they're actually going to fail. The legacy you tried to set is not going to stand because this is what's going to happen to the people. He says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then, and this would be a great place for him to say, Then they lived happily ever after. All those years of labor in the wilderness, it all paid off. But he says, Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be devoured. Those are like the worst words for Moses to hear. So the Nebo promise includes the bitterness of future, of pain of the future. Bad things are going to happen. And this is... Um, the continuation, I'm going to hurry on time. God keeps telling them they're going to turn from the, me to other gods. And why would he do it? Why would he break Moses' heart of all the things he worked for? Actually, they're going to end up failing. I'm not exactly sure. But I do think that God wanted to emphasize to Moses, you failed, they're going to fail, and still I'm going to lead them into the promised land. Their hope is not based on your faithfulness or their future ability to keep covenant. It's based on a God who keeps covenant in our place. And so Moses could have gone into the promised land as the hero and said, we, I led you through all this, I did this, and God put him to rest and said, actually, they're going to go into the promised land on my faithfulness, not yours. So Moses has to deal with these questions this 
guilt and shame, this pain of knowing what's going to happen to the people. But then there's sweetness. He felt almost that his life and his work was in vain. And all these, all these things were piling up. Now let's focus on the sweet parts. So God gave him the ability to view the land. Now this is something like, if you, if you can think of the thing you've been most excited for, that had the most anticipation for, this to Moses was worth everything. To see the land. He'd been waiting for this a long time. And he didn't just see the land. We're going to see what he saw. God tells him you'll see the land. And then if you go to chapter 34, it says, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land. Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev. So just stopping right there, the land was not divided like that yet. It was Ammonites and Girgashites and all these. It wasn't Dan and Manasseh. God gave him a vision of what the land would become with his promise. So he's looking out over the land, and I've, I've seen it, and unless the sky was way more clear, and people in that time have way better eyes, what Moses sees, according to this text, is far beyond what the natural eye can see. So God actually met him in that place and gave a supernatural vision of what the land would look like under God's faithfulness. So Moses gets a very sweet moment of God showing a good future of his faithfulness. And then he gets to see God's faithfulness throughout the past, Peter tells us the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, but you know it sure probably felt that way because the promised land was not a promise originally given to Moses. That was given to Abraham in Ur, and that was like 675 years earlier. So they came in, and we had a, a picture of this in Sabbath school. They came into the land for some time, and then they spent all those years in Egypt, and they came back. It sure felt like God was really slow to keep his promise. But as Moses stood there, he got to review his history, and he got to see God's faithfulness in his past. So a sweet moment with the Nebo promise is to look back and see how God has been good to you each step of the slow promise. And this is what we hear in Patriarchs and Prophets. In solitude, Moses reviewed his life of vicissitudes and hardships since he turned from the courtly honors, from courtly honors and from a prospective kingdom in Egypt to cast his lot with God's chosen people, he called to mind those long years in the deserts with the flocks of Jethro, the appearance of the angel in the burning bush, and his own call to deliver Israel. Again, he beheld the mighty miracles of God's power displayed in behalf of the chosen people and his long-suffering mercy during the years of their wandering and rebellion. And then Moses got a picture of God's faithfulness in the future. So I said he must have worked a, a miracle and given a vision to his eyesight. So once again, we're going to lean on patriarchs and prophets. What we read there is pretty incredible. And this is what was read to us when I was on Mount Nebo. We read this passage from patriarchs and prophets. God didn't just give him a physical vision of land. God allowed him to see through time to the end result of God's faithfulness. So, just put yourself on Mount Nebo, because we're a little closer to the promised land than Moses was. But we're not there yet. And let God assure you that even if you're at a place where 
life is coming to an end or all that bitterness is piling up, there is a grand plan. And I think Moses, in seeing this, thought every bit of it was worth it. So here's what Moses got to see. He got to see promises of the inheritance that would come. So he, he got to look over the land. So this is part of his vision. Every part of the country was spread out before him. Not faint and uncertain in the dim distance, but standing out clear, distinct, and beautiful to his delighted vision. In this scene, it was presented, not as it then appeared, but as it would become with God's blessing upon it in the possession of Israel. He seemed to be looking upon a second Eden. Then several pages later, it says, Moses saw the chosen people established in Canaan, each of the tribes in its own possession. Not only did he see the inheritance of the land, he saw their unfaithfulness. Just as God told him in chapter 31, this is what he saw. He had a view of their history after the settlement of the promised land. The long, sad story of their apostasy and its punishment was spread out before him. And then he got to see scenes of the first advent, Christ coming and spending time on earth. He was permitted to look down the stream of time and behold the first advent of our Savior. Bethlehem, Nazareth, all of it, Gethsemane, the betrayal, the crucifixion, and there's much more words there if you want to go read them. Beheld him coming forth a conquering king and ascending to heaven. So this is his experience on Mount Nebo, looking at this place, and then probably the sweetest of them all. Well, he saw the gospel going to the world. Then the sweet scene he was in that ended his experience was the earth made new. Still another scene opens to his view, the earth freed from the cursed, lovelier than the fair land of promise so lately spread out before him. There is no sin, and death cannot enter. There the nations of the saved find their eternal home. With joy unutterable, Moses looks upon the scene, the fulfillment of a more glorious deliverance than his brightest hopes have ever pictured. Their earthly wanderings forever past, the Israel of God have at last entered the goodly land. So God gives him this opportunity in, in the verse 8 and 9. We see what happens next. It says, And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. So God actually didn't have any of them bury Moses. He handled the job himself. Moses was buried in a valley. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended, and Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the Spirit and wisdom. And I just want you to see the hope between that word and those words. His days were ended, and the next sentence could say, so the people gave up because their leader was dead. The people stayed in the wilderness. But it says, his days were ended, and Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the Spirit. Now, I would love to just get all the credit because I'm prideful, and, and I think, you know, I should be at the center of everything. But the story wasn't over. It was just Moses' part in the story that was over, and God had another man full of the, of the Spirit of God ready to take them into the promised land. Do you find hope in that? Because you might find that your strength is failing or your career is coming to an end or something you've worked so hard for is just kind of dwindling out and it's, it's, it's the end and 
from the perspective of God, there's a Joshua. There's another way that God has planned to keep his purpose in your life moving forward. And if I move myself out of the center of the story and I accept that I can die and God is still faithful. I can lose my health and God is still faithful. I could lose my spouse. I could lose my church. I could lose all these things. I could be removed from the center of the story and God's good story keeps going on because it's not based on my faithfulness to God but on his faithfulness to us. So Moses' story, it ends that way, and that's the Nebo promise. That's where we end. The Nebo promise is, an, is the intertwined experience of the bitter and the good, and that's how every promise will be this side of the, of the promised land. There is a day coming when it's all sweet. No more bitter. It's all good. That day is not today. So as we reflect, I, want, I invite you as we close, we're going to have some music. You can come on up for the closing song. Just put yourself on Mount Nebo, looking out over that, that distance, and think about the bitterness that you're experiencing right now. What are the bitter things? Just let yourself feel them. Think about the sweetness you're experiencing right now. And rather than associating shame and discouragement and wanting to give up with the bitterness, experience both of those in faith. God is a God big enough for your bitterness. God is a God good enough that you can enjoy that sweetness. And just let the, the two pieces of the Nebo promise be pieces that you can meet God in and worship and faith and trust. He's good enough for you in the bitter. And he's so good to give us the sweet. So embrace the Nebo promise in your life. And let this song be a, a, send us away with an attitude of prayer and holding on to the promises of God.